Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Anne-Marie Kinney's second novel, Coldwater Canyon, has received some terrific praise. Ben Laurie called it hot, gritty, swirling, hypnotic, and sensual. An unhinged, sweetly sinister, sun-baked noir, all danger, doomed love, and compassion. Susan Strait called it a stunning journey through the heart-beating heart, hard-beating heart of a California everyone needs to see and know. Anne-Marie Kinney is the author of two novels, Radio Iris and Coldwater Canyon. A New York Times editor's choice pick, Radio Iris was called a spiky debut and The Office as scripted by Kafka by the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Her shorter work has been published in journals including Alaska Quarterly Review, The Rattling Wall, The Collagist, Fanzine, and Black Clock, for which she, has also, for which she also served as production editor from 2011 to 2016. She lives here in LA where she co-curates the Griffith Park Storytelling Series. Also joining us this evening is Anthony Miller, a writer, critic, and independent scholar. His writing has appeared in Book Forum, LA Weekly, Los Angeles City Beat, Poets and Writers, High Low Brow, and Black Clock, where he was editor-at-large. Please join me in giving tonight's authors a warm, well, warm welcome. Oh, I should probably talk into the mic or something. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Um, so just to give you a brief little introduction to the book, um, it's about um, a middle-aged desert storm veteran named uh, John Shepard, uh, a.k.a. Shep, who uh, moves from uh, rural Nebraska to... L.A., the Valley, um, following a young actress who he believes is his daughter. Um, and when he's not following her around, he's um, hanging out mostly at the strip mall near his house. And um, in this uh, little section I'm going to read first, um, he's, uh, he's outside the strip mall and he's been seeing these children's drawings on the telephone pole. Fourteen. Shep counted them up again, the number of faces on the telephone pole. The new one was an army man with little pen marks made to resemble a buzz cut and clumsily rendered, rendered camouflage colored in at the shoulders. He looked around thinking he might see the young artist watching from some hiding place nearby. He too had busily filled up notebooks with drawings of tanks and soldiers as a boy. He'd drawn gruesome battle scenes, complete with decapitated bodies and great fireballs in the sky, overpowering the round yellow sun with its squiggly rays. Shep fingered the edge of the paper and was startled when it came off in his hand. The scotch tape on the back fell to the ground. He tried to stick it back up, but the tape had picked up too much dirt. Parkdale's wasn't open yet. 
He held the drawing carefully and looked again for the culprit, but there wasn't a body in sight, and when he looked up at the lightening sky with the moon still visible, even as the sun rose up behind the mountains, he was transported. You have just experienced the most powerful conventional bomb dropped in the war. The words drifted back from so many years earlier, word for word, the English translation just below the Arabic. It has more explosive power than 20 Scud missiles. You will be bombed again soon. Flee south and you will be treated fairly. You cannot hide. Flee and live or stay and die. He'd found the propaganda leaflet in the sand, and though he knew it was one of thousands that had been airdropped days earlier for the Iraqis and not for him, it chilled him all the same. Flee and live or stay and die. Triggering, triggering a desire in him to run until he hit water. He remembered it too often still, though he'd dropped it like a hot rock and had watched it skitter across the sand on the desert breeze as soon as he'd read it. That very night at base camp, the words had returned, flee and live or stay and die, keeping him awake most of the night. He held the drawing to his chest and looked around helplessly until he remembered the donut shop, always open. Lionel followed along behind him. Hello, he called. He rang the bell on the counter and breathed in the cloyingly sweet air for a minute until a white-haired man in shirt sleeves emerged from the back. No dogs, the man said. Oh, uh, hey, do you have any tape or a staple gun or something I could borrow? No dogs. No dogs, he repeated, making an ixnay motion with his hands. Okay, okay, Shep said, backing out of the store. The swinging door jingled behind them. He lifted his wrist to look at his watch but found he'd neglected to put it on. In fact, he realized with some disquiet, he could remember neither the walk here nor getting up in the first place. He and Lionel stood alone in the parking lot, Shep growing increasingly annoyed with his unwanted possession of the drawing. He couldn't just throw it away. He looked around again, and the corner was eerily still, not a car, not a person, not even a sound. He knitted his brow and rubbed the paper between his thumb and index finger. He felt a presence then, a shift in gravity, and looked up to see an old man sticking his head out the window above Parkdale's. It took him a moment to realize it was Hung's father. Shep hadn't actually seen him since his stroke. The man blinked, his waxen face set in a grimace, but Shep couldn't tell if the old man saw him down in the parking lot. Mr. Fan, he tried. The man didn't look down, but continued staring out grimly in the direction of the power lines that swooped low alongside the treetops. Hello, Mr. Fan. Suddenly, two hands gripped the man's arms and gently guided him away from the window. Hung appeared in his place. Shep. What the fuck, you can't wait 10 minutes? Sorry. Just chill there for a minute, all right? He shut the window and drew the faded yellow curtains. Shep sat, on, Shep sat on the curb and Lionel leaned into his hip. The wind picked up and he held the sheet of paper down against his thigh. From where he sat, he could see that the other sheets of paper were fluttering precariously against the telephone pole. He imagined them all coming loose at once, flying off down the street, and him running after them in a doomed attempt at rescue. He watched the pages flap, their ragged spiral notebook edges dancing like dandelion florets. Time passed in silence, how much time he couldn't begin to guess, but as the minutes ticked on, he began to worry that Hung would never come, that he'd in fact imagined their earlier conversation and the encounter at the donut shop too, since of course there was no one behind the counter now. There were no cars on the road, no people, no one waiting at the nearby bus stop, no one, no one. He contemplated calling out a great echoing, hello, but was hunkered down too deeply in his thoughts to turn any single one into an action. You will be bombed again soon. Now that the words had come back to him, they kept repeating, slipping in between other thoughts. You cannot hide, flee and live or stay and die. And he remembered even more than the smell, the sound of burning oil fields, like a storm raging on and on without end. Hey, 
Shep's shoulders jerked up. Hey, Hung said again. You hypnotized? You deaf? That dog ear's been barking like crazy. Oh, oh, he muttered, disoriented still but soothed by Hung's arrival, an indication that he had not, in fact, fallen into a crevice in time. He looked down at the paper still pressed under his palm. Hung, you got any tape? Yeah, I got tape. Now get off the curb. You're blocking the handicap spot. Shep rose with some difficulty just as the cowboy approached the side of the building, the wheels of his shopping cart cutting the silence, whooshing softly against the dusty pavement. Chapter 6. She'd be coming out the east side of the building. Shep knew because he'd been here before, because she'd been here before. He'd followed her on two buses, from her stop on Colfax, just a couple of miles from his home, all the way to the casting office on Ventura. He'd watched her crouch in the parking garage stairwell to check her makeup, her headshots and resumes tucked in a manila envelope under her arm, watched her make ethereal faces into her compact, practicing her poignant stare. While he waited, he tried to imagine what those offices looked like inside. Were they Hollywood slick with real plants and glass tabletops? Or was she sitting under buzzing fluorescent lights, the walls stuffed with, with asbestos, brushing the balls of her feet rhythmically against stained Berber carpet? He liked to imagine Lila in these quiet moments, daydreaming her surroundings, wondering at her thoughts. His gaze floated up to a billboard with a male model holding a bottle of Tanqueray, his hair slicked back and skinny tie flying three-dimensionally beyond the billboard's edge. I know you're bored, Lionel. I never promised you excitement. The dog lay on his side on the passenger seat, his tongue lolling slightly out the side of his mouth. Shep scratched Lionel's belly and the dog kicked his leg in a jerky circular motion. While he waited, Shep tried to ignore a drilling ache in his own belly, one he'd woken with that morning. He rested his hand on the spot as though holding the pain back from spreading through the rest of his body. When she emerged a half hour later, it took him a moment to notice that she was in some kind of distress. She looked wan with a new pallor, her jaw quivering. Her hands were trembling as she opened and closed her mouth, seemingly making a deliberate effort to breathe. The manila envelope slipped from her fingers onto the pavement, and she quickly crouched down to scoop it up before it blew into a puddle on the sidewalk. She clutched the envelope to her chest and took a few more breaths, then rose slowly, carefully, on her two high platform heels. Shep started the car and waited until she was half a block ahead of him before pulling out to follow. From behind, she looked so much like Lorene, though her gait was quick, her steps clipped and narrow, not like Lorene's at all, come to think of it. Lorene always walked like she knew people were watching, like she was performing a walk. He remembered the first time he'd seen her outside Wilcox High. He was a senior, ditching last period with Marty Cumberland, who would be killed not two years after graduation, flipping his dad's tractor off the side of Highway 136 while Shep lay in a bunk in Saudi. It was just a few weeks into the school year. They were smoking under the bleachers during a free period, he hanging lackadaisically with his hands gripping the aluminum bars while Marty repacked the bowl when the double doors at the back of the gym opened, cutting the afternoon's lulling prairie stillness. He signaled to Marty to hide the pipe under his backpack. Then she appeared in gym clothes, cotton shorts and Wilcox Wildcats t-shirt tied in a knot at her hip. Even in tennis shoes, she walked with purpose, her hips in a controlled swing, her backpack hanging from one shoulder, blonde bangs swept low over her right eye. She pulled a tube of lip gloss from her bag and gently dabbed at her lips without consulting a mirror. Marty pulled the pipe back out and flicked his lighter, satisfied that no teacher was coming, but Shep just stared. She must be a freshman, he thought, because he was certain he'd never seen her before. A black Chevy pulled up at the curb and the girl waved. She leaned into the window to greet an unseen driver before crossing over to the passenger side and climbing in. The truck pulled out of the parking lot and Shep watched it all the way until it passed the water tower to the north, where it faded out into the dusty horizon. The similarity must be in his head, he reasoned now. 
Lila didn't seem to be quite so aware of her beauty, not as blazingly confident. He hesitated to take note of her backside in the filmy sundress she was wearing, which threatened to fly up with every gust of wind. She kept her fingertips grazing its short hemline, clamping down with her palm every time the breeze picked up. She didn't usually dress like that. When she wasn't dressed in her work uniform, he usually saw her in jeans and t-shirts. He wondered if some fat cigar-chomping agent or casting director had told her she had to be sexier and fumed a little on her behalf. Still, she was more beautiful than Lorene had ever been if such a thing were possible. She'd taken her long, dirty blonde hair down and it blew about her tanned shoulders as she walked with her head down. Suddenly, Lila stopped as though stricken. She ducked to her right and disappeared into an alley. Shep pulled over and, without thinking, stopped the car. Lionel barking in protest at being left behind as his master got out and approached on foot, thinking she must be sick or hurt or worse, not thinking of what he would say or do when he caught up to her. He peered into the alley to find her crouched down on her haunches, her back to the wall, sobbing. Her eyes were squeezed shut as her shoulders heaved. Shep froze, realizing that there was nothing he could do here. She wouldn't recognize him, surely, and he couldn't risk revealing himself. Besides which, he had no way of consoling her. He knew what this, what he looked like. Even if he came to her saying, shh, shh, it's all right, as he would do a child. Even if he said her name, good God, especially if. Her crying tapered off and she breathed roughly for a minute, wiping her face with a disintegrating tissue she'd fished out of her purse. Shep knew he should leave. She would scream if she saw him there, snooping down the alley at her private despair. Was it the audition? Had they been cruel to her? Or was it something deeper? a long-standing torment of which he knew nothing and could never hope to understand. On a count of three, he turned away from her, resting his face on the white-painted brick for a moment before returning to the car. He heaved himself into the driver's seat as Lionel climbed all over him, lapping at every inch of his neck and chin. Shep set the dog back down on his passenger seat. He started the car up again and sat with his hands on the wheel, waiting for the engine to stop coughing. A minute later, she emerged from the alley, her face freshened as though nothing had happened, and continued on her way. He pulled out of the spot and followed, painful, painfully aware now that the time he'd invested into following her was giving him an idea of her habits, but no insight into her soul. There was no coming back from it, no way to replace the years. Thank you. So Anne-Marie, the book is called Coldwater Canyon, and landscape is a major character in this book. Yes. So talk to us about place. Um, I think, like, everything I've ever written starts with the place. I just kind of, um, like, this one I just started kind of recording my neighborhood and my surroundings, you know, when I was living in the valley. and. I just, I don't know, I became really fascinated by strip malls and vans. Like, I was noticing vans everywhere, like, white vans with darkened windows, and it just became this mystery, you know, all around me. And um, I don't know, I feel that the Valley is really inspiring to me because it's so weird, but, like, a lot of people in L.A., like, never go there. So. And the, there's a point in the book where you talk about the fact that Shep has never been to the water. Yeah. And he's not likely to see any part of LA that isn't part of his landscape. Yeah. And and you say that uh, that to try and understand uh, there's a woman that he meets, Cynthia, who lives in a completely different part of the of the uh, city and 
uh, he can't understand her because he can't understand her the geography of where she lives. Yeah, she you know lives in this mansion up in the Hollywood Hills. She's a producer that he meets in the course of his um, um as he gets closer to Lila, he becomes uh, starts working as an extra and uh, sees a whole other side of L.A. and um, yeah, I think that's one thing that people talk about a lot about L.A. is that it's so many different places in one and you could live so many different lives. You could like move a few blocks and just bury your past almost. <laughs> like, Why do you think Shep is so committed to staying in the small community that he's in? Um, I think he's scared and he's, um, he's has tunnel vision. He's only interested in following this girl and um, can't really think much beyond that. Um, he's very attached to his habits. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us are, you know, you have a certain number of places you go each day and that just becomes your life. Well, one of the rituals that he does with his friend Hung is they do the word jumble Mm -hmm. in the morning. And I feel like the jumble is kind of a metaphor for Shep. In a way, he can't sort time. He can't sort... Um, where he is from moment to moment. I mean, he is a uh, Gulf War syndrome sufferer. Mm -hmm. He's a good or bad grandson. He's uh, something of a dedicated voyeur. He he doesn't know who he is from moment to moment. Yeah, and he really, really struggles with the word jumble. Um. Um... Yeah. You you uh, like uh, like Iris, the protagonist of uh, Anne Marie's first book, and uh, like Anne Marie, and like so many of us, um, you're an eavesdropper. What yeah. is the role of eavesdropping in fiction? I mean, I don't know about you all, but I am listening to everyone all of the time. <laughs> like, not even, like, with any purpose, like, oh, I'm going to use this, but just because that's just what you do, right? <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't I? Like, I um, I listen to a lot of, like, because I write in coffee shops, and I listen to a lot of bad dates, bad first dates, listening to people, like, tell someone their whole deal. <laughs> <laughs> And I and I can know I can't stop. It's like really compulsive, and so that's why it was easy for me to write about someone who compulsively, you know, follows and watches and listens to someone. And, and you wrote this in a coffee shop that doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. Yeah, well, I wrote a lot of it at a place called um, God. It was Bob's Espresso Bar, and in North Hollywood, and it was owned by the guy who played Vic Damone in um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Was that his name? And um, yeah, and a lot of times, like it was, it was really just me and him in the, in the shop. <laughs> and he played, he played good music, and I felt like he got me, even though we never really talked. <laughs> you ne- never asked him about uh, fast times. Oh no! Although there was in the bathroom, they had like a cast portrait. Like, <laughs> mm. um, what what is the role of dreaming in this book? Um, well. There's a, there are a lot of dreams in the book, and, that's, and they kind of blend with Shep's waking life, which uh, happens in a lot of what I write, because I think 
I think saying dreams aren't real is kind of not really true because you know, even though the events in a dream don't really happen, they still become a part of the mental emotional catalog of the dreamer and you carry, you know, you carry it with you, you know, through the day. And um, so that's why it was important to me to kind of blur the edges a little bit between dreams and waking life. Well, he starts out by telling Hung that he can't remember, he doesn't dream, he can't remember his dreams. Yeah. And then proceeds a whole series of dreams through the whole book. Yeah. And I think he's, he probably thinks he's telling the truth in that moment because he, I don't think he really identifies his dreams as dreams. They're just another thing he experiences. And, and you had said that a dream is as real as reading a novel. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it is because you, you know, you remember it, you carry it with you. You create associations with things based on dreams. And this, of course, is also the city of dreams, and he <laughs> plays a peripheral role in Hollywood. How, how does he? Well, um, so when he, he follows, you know, Lila along on auditions, and then he sees her sign up, you know, to be uh, an extra at Central Casting, and he just kind of impulsively follows her lead. And so then he winds up um, just being a background actor in a bunch of movies and TV shows. And why did you make him a background actor? Um... Well, I thought because he um, he takes to it because there's it's such a repetitive thing, you know. He's attached to his habits, and like, what better way to just be like in a in a like allowed to be in a rut, <laughs> like go there, go there, say this, like again, 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 you know. And and you did some of that. Yourself? I did when I when I was in grad school and I was doing a lot of random odd jobs. I uh, did some extra work, yeah. So uh, another major character in this book is, and, and you mentioned him in the portion that you read, is Lionel. And, and this one is for, for Dee Dee, wherever Dee Dee may be, if Dee Dee is still here. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking, thinking a lot about uh, animals in fiction. And this is one of those animals that's, that goes through the entire story. Uh, Lionel is in the first paragraph, and Lionel is at the end of the book. And so, we were talking about so many uh, fictions whether it's novel, short stories, or television, animals and children show up in these wonderfully convenient metaphorical mm-hmm. moments, but then they don't have to be fed or put to bed or, 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 uh, or walked or any, any of these things. Um, and Lionel is a, a, a major character in this book. Yeah, well, I, I wanted... Um, a lot of times I used Lionel as a kind of constraint, like... He like it's a problem that he always has to deal with. He has to arrange for the dog, you know, no matter what, all the time. He can't leave him in the car too long. You know, he's got to remember to feed him. And it's, you know, really hard for someone like him who's, you know, not always all there mentally. But that kind of keeps him tethered, is like just always attending to this dog. Um, and then the dog also, like, I don't know, he's kind of, he's a little bit magical, you know, as dogs in fiction are. Right. Um, uh, in in Ulysses, James Joyce has uh, his everyman uh, Leopold Bloom have a conversation with the with his cat. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for those of you who know the the cat gets a line of dialogue M K G N A O. 
is the cat's meow. Leave it to Joyce to spell it that way. <laughs> uh, but you have uh, Shep having long conversations with Lionel, and there is even a moment in the book where we see something uh, through Lionel's point of view. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Because, like, I don't, I don't think you necessarily have to um, decide whether the dog is actually you know, responding in the way that he does or whether it's the person he's with is projecting, you know, you can, but you can have conversations with a dog. And, um, I mean, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I felt I, Lionel kind of becomes a baton that's passed between characters. Um, I won't get into too much detail to, not give that away. Oh, he's although he's mostly with Shep. Um, yeah. What what uh, what would you say his significance is for Shep? Well, he's he's kind of his companion on this like grand journey that he's taken. You know, from um, he he meets the dog actually like on the road when he goes to, from Nebraska to L.A. and um, he actually picks up the dog. He finds him in Liberal, Kansas, which is you know, the home of the Wizard of Oz. Um, and it, he is kind of, you know, it's like a Toto type He's of total. dog. Yeah, okay. kind of, kind of, yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, the fact that this is a uh, transplant and you spend a lot of time talking about his Nebraska uh, upbringing and then here he is uh, in in the Valley Um there's a there's a sense that there's nothing in between. There's there's the war, mm -hmm. but um, what did uh, what did you want to say about transplantation there? What did you want to say about dropping someone behind lines, as it were? Well, I mean, I think California has always been this kind of like place for people to get a fresh start, you know, and um, where you can not have a past. Um, although um, Shep is really preoccupied with the past in a lot of ways, he's able to kind of hide um, here. Um, Where did Shep come from? What, what interested you about this character? Um, I mean, really, I just, like, it started, you know, I started with my neighborhood and the place, and I, he was, I just kind of pictured this guy walking along with a dog, and I just kind of started writing from that and trying to figure out who is this guy, you know? Um, and then as just stuff started to pop up, I started adding details, you know, from my own life. I got a lot of his backstory from my husband who was from Nebraska and who was served in the military. <laughs> and he was my, I would, be, I would ask him a lot of questions about tanks and stuff. <laughs> Well, you have two wars in this book. You have uh, Shep is, is a veteran of the Gulf War, mm -hmm. and Hung's father mm -hmm. uh, it served in Vietnam mm -hmm. uh, as an Arvin yeah. uh, and has come here with his family to make a new life. Mm -hmm. uh, why, the, why the two wars? Well, I wanted to draw a parallel between Shep and uh, Hung's father because they're two two people whose kind of bodies have been broken by war in, to one degree or another. 
um, um, do we know why Shep's suffering? Um, well, a lot of it is um, uh, uh, chemical exposure. Um, a lot of stuff that, you know, the government tried to call PTSD alone for a long time, but, you know, there's been more and more studies showing that the chemicals and things that people were exposed to there did cause long-term problems. Um, well, you, you don't you don't spend a lot of time sort of getting to the bottom of it so much as he suffers, and yeah. we we don't know. I mean, there are some scenes where you know flashbacks to him, you know, at the VA, um, you know, receiving treatment and getting his you know disability paperwork and stuff like that, and having to fight hard to get that disability paperwork. Um, what uh, what interested you about this character of Cynthia? who is, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills and Shep almost stumbles into this non-relationship with her. Um, I just wanted to take him to a, a, a new place, kind of, because um, I, I guess I kind of wanted to geographically move, like, literally upwards, you know, so he's very much on the ground at the strip, the strip mall and the, his car and all that, and then he travels up to the Hollywood Hills and it's just like, oh, like, the air is so thin up here, what's going on? And, like, he almost could have a wholly new experience there, but he's just, he can't. He's just pulled back down um, just by his fixations. And, um, and should we talk about this ominous water store in this strip mall, this, this water store where no one seems to buy <laughs> anything? Or I mean, there's a lot of those. I mean, th I mean, there was... I based it on an actual water store in my neighborhood. <laughs> where, where cars would park for no yeah, good reason. Yeah, there would just be a lot of people there, a lot of cars parked, but, like, you'd go in, and it's like, there's hardly anything in this store. <laughs> and, like, everything looks really old. Um, it's, just, it's just kind of another texture of the valley. Um, yeah. Um, Okay, so question. Uh, we both worked on Black Clock magazine. What did working on that magazine, uh, the, the editor of, of that magazine is here in the, in the mm -hmm. deep background. Um, what did working on that magazine teach you about writing or editing? Um, well, my job, because I was the production editor, and so I was just reading everything like 900 million times and like memorizing everything. And I think that was really, it was a good experience for me, like reading something so much that I internalized it. Um, it's, um, I guess it was. A, Do you think it changed the way you looked at your own work and, um, or, or how you came to approach something after you were done reading someone else's work? I don't know that it did, but I feel like it changed my brain in, in productive ways because um, it's like there's some stories that I, you know, proofread a million times that like I still like still come into my head, you know, in the same way that dreams do, you know, it's just like added so much to my catalog. <laughs> well, who are, who are some of the... Uh, dreamers that that interest you out in the out in the world 
are there are there particular people who um, whose work inspire you? <laughs> well, we we talked about David Lynch because. Um, uh, you know, I picked up doing transcendental meditation because of David Lynch, and that's been um, important to my habits, both writing and otherwise. Um, and, you know, I, I, I identify with his same, you know, use of dreams and dream logic. Um. <laughs> now, how do, you, how do you know when it's dream logic? How do you know when you're not just, you know, um, solving a problem that isn't there. I mean, when when do you when do you decide that okay, this is clearly uh, Shep's dream uh, altering his reality as opposed to just um, something he's you know made <laughs> um, up. Many many years ago, I heard I heard or saw an interview with Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam where he was talking about his technique, and he said, "I'm a feel player." And I feel like that's just like become my motto in life. I'm a feel player. <laughs> and you just gotta just be in touch with what feels logical to you, I guess. The, the, the way Shep is willing to go from Nebraska all the way to LA yeah. for a, a woman who may or may not be his daughter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, should we throw it open to questions? Sure, if people have any questions. No one has any questions. Yeah. I wonder how much of a routine you determined to make that when you're storytelling, or do you find them like when you find your characters, are they just, are they honest with you? I, you know, I, I'm skeptical of the idea that there is such a thing as a reliable narrator, because um, I think everyone kind of, everyone tells themselves stories in order to live. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and I think everyone kind of repeats narratives over and over to make sense of their lives. And so I think unreliable narrators are just narrators. That's everyone. Um, like I mentioned the vans, like, <laughs> There's a lot of vans all over the place. Um, like, and if you're looking for, especially if you start looking for them, like, like I did, like you're gonna see a different van every day and, and you'll notice it's parked there. And then like, you know, I would, I would be watching this van and then I would see like it moved to the other side of the street and I'm like, what's going on there? Um, um, there's that and really like the strip malls are very distinctive. Um, like each one has its own personality. And that, that's why I kind of centered this on a strip mall, because like there's a whole ecosystem to every strip mall, you know. And those those little drawings, flyers and, and handouts. We we haven't even talked about the sort of uh, um, little play that, that Lila is involved in this this world of black book uh, oh, black yeah, box the, theater. Yeah, she yeah. does this um like black box theater play. Um, that Shep finds this attends and finds very alarming. Um, uh, so I, I, there are all these different things that are happening at the same time in this book. That there's there's uh, 
all these characters have their own. Hung, we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about, but he holds down this store, Parkdale, and, and this cast of characters moves in, and, and not to give too much away, Shep learns an awful lot about Hung's uh, daily life. Yeah, and... and um, you know, Hung himself has his own just like very small world where he's really tethered to this store and that he's like holding together for his family. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he, you know, in the same way that Shep is fixated on this young actress, um, you know, Hung becomes fixated on, you know, this water store and trying to figure out what threat level he should be feeling from them. And um, yeah, I mean, people really fixate on their obsessions and stay there. What was the most difficult part of this book? What was the part of this book that once you had solved, you knew you were done with the book? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I mean, was, was, there, was there something that was more difficult than anything else? Um, I don't. I don't remember. Like, I mean, I, a, a lot. Of, yeah, I don't remember. I'm. It's very hard. It's hard to talk about books. Um, <laughs> we talked about this before, and how because um, when we were talking about David Lynch, how yeah. he said that he doesn't like to talk about movies because the movie is the talking. I feel like the book is the talking. <laughs> and yet here I am. Um, <laughs> but um, I really am set off by this idea of the ecosystem that was written on. Could you just like riff on the idea of that stuff that's in your book right now? Um, well, I mean, part of it is just the, the ecosystem of work. You know, is when you when you're working in an when you're working in an office. You know, you start to pay a lot of attention to everybody's habits, and you you know what time you know someone is gonna you know eat a certain thing and you like, oh, like that person wears that shirt on Mondays. And whereas the, the strip mall, it's like everyone in their workplace is peering into everyone else's workplace, you know, um, and observing the habits of people that they don't even know that much or may come to know. Um, you know, in this strip mall, there's, you know, the convenience store and there's a donut shop and there's the water store and there's, you know, um, I think there's a barber shop, and it's just, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird experience to, you know, spend, most people, you know, if you don't work in a strip mall, you, you know, go there for one thing, and then you leave, but to be there all day is a different thing. Um, just to add to what you were just saying, I was thinking that Iris in your first book and Shep in your second book are both like unpaid private detectives. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, are, they are lurking around making assessments of other people's routines, and their routine is finding other people's routines. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I could make ends meet as a private detective, I would, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? 
<laughs> I I don't know. Like I when I when I lived especially in North Hollywood, I just I noticed vans a lot and like they would, you know, stay in one spot for a very long time and then move to a different street and I I never no I never found out. I never found out the deal. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks well, there, for reminding there, me. There, there's one in the book that has all this signage on yeah, it. Yeah, and that was actually like like verbatim a real that's van based that on a real with van like, that with like signs like warning people away like don't come near this van you are under surveillance right now and so so that van is doing a public service yeah i guess yeah um i don't know where the van is now but <laughs> it might still be parked where i found it i don't know Um, I guess as I keep being interested in it, like, um, I don't ever, like, when I start writing something, I don't ever know what it's going to be, like, it might be a short story, it might be a novel, it might be garbage, I don't know. Um, it's only when, I don't know, something hooks my interest that, you know, it becomes clear it's going to be something longer. Because I, I, I write without any intention, starting, it's just like, whatever happens, happens, then it's like, oh, that, that's something. Um. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I yeah. Um I mean what I'm working on now there's no dog and I don't like see a place for a dog but I mean, I really like writing dogs. Um, I just like them as as people. Tell um, us about what you're working on now. <laughs> what, what was uh, you're researching? All kinds of interesting topics. Well, I'm working on a novel. It's kind of um, it's, since everything is place. Um, it's kind of a road novel. It takes place a lot um, on the road and in the Southwest, particularly. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> It's still too unformed to really say what it's about, but I'm researching a lot about climate change and brain tumors and, uh, yeah, mostly those Preparedness? Things. Yes, yes, doomsday preppers. So that's all coming into it. I'm really, really trying to finish a draft before I have this baby. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I think you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.